Welcome to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety and technology share knowledge and experiences and discuss events and trends in food safety. Here's your host, Dr. Peter Teramina. Hi, everybody. I'm so pleased to introduce to you today to the podcast, Dr. Jennifer McIntyre. Jennifer is Vice President of Food Safety and Technology at United Fresh Produce Association. A food microbiologist by background, she's always worked in Washington, D.C. area, bringing scientific perspective to food safety regulatory issues. She was previously Vice President of Science Operations at the Grocery Manufacturers Association, She has also had roles as VP and Chief Science Officer at the Atchison Group, a consulting firm, and as the Senior Staff Scientist and Director of Science and Technology Projects at the Institute of Food Technologists. Dr. McIntyre earned a PhD from Rutgers University as a USDA National Needs Fellow in Food Safety and received a Bachelor of Science with distinction magna cum laude in food science from the University of Delaware. She serves as an advisory board member of the Global Food Traceability Center on the technical committee of the Center for Produce Safety and is on the executive committee of the Food Safety Preventive Controls Alliance. And I'm so pleased to introduce to you Jennifer McIntyre. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. Thanks for being on. I really appreciate your time. So what, is, what are you up to these days? What's, what's been going on with you just to right off the bat? Oh, well, working in the fresh produce area, it's, you know, having worked in food safety for all different types of commodities for a long time, fresh produce is hard. Mm-hmm. I, you know, when you have a product that doesn't have a kill step, mm-hmm. there inevitably there are outbreaks. And science has gotten better at detecting them, which is fantastic. I think it gives us a real opportunity to figure out what's going wrong and make some improvements, but it's it's just a ton of work when you've got romaine in the the, the romaine task force and you have papayas and you have cut melons and you have cyclospora and you know it's it's a lot of different um things it keeps me it keeps me busy but it also keeps me on my toes keeps me thinking so i like it but it it's fresh produces it's a lot <laughs> it's a lot happening so you are with an organization that has how many industry members does united fresh have in total, we've got uh, about uh, around 1,500 members, but about 100 of those are other associations. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things about fresh produce, we say fresh produce, but it's it's not all the same. So mm-hmm. the different commodities are very different from each other. The growing regions are very different from each other. So you have all these smaller associations kind of, you know, specializing, and then we as the National Association just uh, again doing anything and everything when it comes to fresh produce safety and there's as you alluded to a lot going on so i guess um part of this interview i hope to get into some of the behind the scenes as some of these outbreaks were occurring and the recalls what were some of your actions what were some of your experiences and what were some of the outcomes that you saw um so hopefully we can get into that. Oh, oh yeah. And, you know, it's hard because you, especially when you're working for a trade association, you want to 
protect the industry and protect your members, but not at the expense of public health. Right. So that has to come first. And sometimes it's very difficult conversations to have with members to explain why FDA, CDC are taking certain actions, why they're taking, you know, kind of broad actions against the entirety of an industry when people are getting sick. And it's just really hard to figure out mm-hmm. where exactly is that product coming from. Mm-hmm. So balancing how do you protect people and not throw the entire industry under the bus? Mm-hmm. I think it's something that we've been struggling with. Right. And so when you are involved in something like an outbreak, and do you draw on your food microbiology expertise more? Do you draw upon your um, industry and, and association and DC experience more? Or how, how do you execute your job to the best to support your members and protect public health? Good, good question. So um, at least when I get when there's the chatter, you know, when you hear that something might be going on, mm-hmm. I eventually I draw on my food microbiology expertise, but more it's on the communications mm-hmm. side, and it's like doing a puzzle or playing a game of chess, of you know, just trying to mm-hmm. figure stuff out first. Certainly on the scientific side, when we're looking, especially now with whole genome sequencing, which has really been a game changer, understanding what are the organisms that are causing illness where have we seen them before you know that that brings some of the food my food micro background uh, to the forefront but then there are the other disciplines which you know trained as a food scientist things that you don't learn about on the epidemiology side so how do you look at patterns of illness in a population Mm -hmm. and um, it's something that's fascinating to me, it's a different type of science, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ha- just understanding how FDA is going to work, how CDC is going to work, where they're coming from, what they're thinking, trying to anticipate some of their actions and be be prepared on communication. So it's, I feel like, you know, as I look at my educational background, I wouldn't say that I that I that it didn't prepare me to do what I'm doing today, but it's. What I do today is a, a mm-hmm. tremendous extension mm-hmm. of what I learned in school. J- getting to some specifics about outbreaks, I think we've had a number of years of leafy greens uh, contaminated with sugar toxin producing E. coli. We've had a number of events from, from growers um, and, and harvesters and those issues. You've worked through those. There have been I guess a, a little bit more recently, Listeria monocytogenes on uh, fresh cut produce. And now it seems that cyclospora and parasitic pathogen on fresh cut melons and, and even other fresh uh, produce, like uh, I guess uh, celery and carrot sticks or things like that. Uh, what am I missing? <laughs> well, on the cyclospora side, part of it, I think think is that, I mean, that's, it's a weird bug. It is a parasite. It's not something that when people go to the doctor, it's not necessarily top of mind mm-hmm. as a cause of illness, but some of the culture independent diagnostic tools have really improved so that it's more likely that a doctor will detect that someone has cyclosporiasis. So now we're recognizing that a lot of these illnesses are occurring. Maybe they were occurring before and we just didn't know. Now we know. Mm-hmm. And now that we know, we have to do something about it. So um, trying to understand this 
this organism. Uh, our detection tools in the field are still very poor. So if somebody is sick, they're shedding a, a lot of cyclospora. Mm -hmm. You can pick it up. But standard detection of a plant tissue or water or soil or whatever at, the, at those levels, unlikely to pick it up. Mm -hmm. um, and we just, we don't have commercially available tools for detection at this point in time. We don't, we also lack genotyping. So even when there are outbreaks of cyclospora, and we know right now today that there are a number of clusters of illness in different parts of the United States, from a genotyping standpoint, we can't tell if they're related to each other. On the bacterial side, whether it's 0157H7 or salmonella or listeria, you can do whole genome sequencing and you can tell, oh, these illnesses are related to each other at the, you know, at a genetic level. For cyclospora, we can't do that right now. So there's this heavy reliance on epidemiology, just asking people what they ate mm -hmm. and seeing if they have, in different parts of the country, something in common. So mm -hmm. it's, it's tough, but... I could imagine that that has presented you some challenges with perhaps um, if it's, if there's only uh, epidemiological traceback and no molecular diagnostics, what what sort of a challenge that is, to, and and how I could imagine that industry is 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 pushing back on the epidemiology in some cases. There's. So sometimes it's just really hard because, especially for cyclospora, with the incubation time um, and, and because you're only relying on the epidemiology, it, it, is, it is challenging. There are some usual suspects, I'd say. So we have enough history now behind us that some people, whether be it right or wrong, some people may jump to conclusions about what could be causing illness, may focus in. Mm -hmm. Uh, on some of those epi interviews, some of those food histories to to focus in on a few specific items, whether they're actually causing illness or not. Um, but the one of the things that I've learned on the epi side is the statistics matters. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we can get really far in looking, even if we don't have a positive product, um, we certainly need to rely on the trace back mm -hmm. in conjunction with epi, but there can be some pretty compelling evidence even without that, that what I call the, sci the pure scientific evidence. Mm -hmm. the, the other evidence can still be pretty strong, but there are people who push back even, I mean, for any type of product and for any type of um, pathogen, like how, how do they know that it's yeah. whatever, my product that I'm producing? And, right. And so those are some of the tougher conversations to explain why public health agencies think it is romaine or um, cut melon or mm -hmm. caramel apples or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Just one more question on cyclospora. It is not a Central American import issue, is it? Not anymore. <laughs> yeah, the historical thinking was... It, it, it's it's related to imports. Last year, uh, FDA found cyclospora in the United States and product in the United States, not just once, but a couple of times. Different products, different <clears throat> different states within the U.S. So it does beg the question, and there have been a lot of discussions: why, what's happening? What's different? What's new? Um, is it endemic here, mm -hmm. or how did it get here? Mm -hmm. 
Is it related to, we know that humans are the only host, or at least we think we know that humans are the only host. Mm. So who are these people who are carrying, shedding cyclospora that could have, um, uh, that obviously were in the United States and something happened. But mm. yeah, it's, it's perplexing. And mm. I, I'm just fascinated by it. Is it one of those things that keeps you up at night or is it more of, hey, here's another challenge and we as an industry are going to go after this and, and improve food safety? Right now, I'd say it's the latter mm-hmm. and only, for a couple of reasons. One, because the severity of illness is not high. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't meet that threshold of a Sakota hazard. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't cause a serious adverse health consequence. We don't know of any deaths that have been related to cyclospora. You have diarrhea for weeks, which I'm sure is quite unpleasant, but it's, as best we can tell, it's not likely to kill somebody. The other reason that, um, it really bothers me, cyclospora really bothers me that we don't have the science, that we don't have the tools available, but I'm hopeful that we will. So it's not like all hope is lost here. I think that we're early in the journey, but we know the path we need to go down as a scientific community, and and we just, you know, we need to walk that path. So I don't feel like cyclospore is a lost cause. It's something that frustrates me at this point in time because I feel a little bit stuck in trying to advise my members on how they can avoid issues because we just don't really know other than the basic basic human hygiene, um, which people are already supposed to be practicing. So then why do we have a problem? So I'm curious about what the future holds when it comes to cyclospora, but there are definitely, there are plenty of other things that keep me up at night. (laughs) (laughs) So Jennifer, I wanted to also ask you about salmonella and cut melons. That's another one that seems to happen a few times in the past few years, at least. Um, and and yet the industry's been under the produce rule and preventive controls for over a year, let's say. So what's going on there that you could share with us? I have to think that the salmonella in cut melon outbreaks, there have been two in two years, but associated with the same firm. It is a member of ours, you know, and as the association, we're always there to help provide technical support. And, and education and, and hold somebody's hand through that sort of situation. I think there's work that we can do uh, in all, uh, many parts of the fresh produce industry, looking at wash water validation, looking at, um, I, I, I have to think without having been in that facility that managing wash water, I know that it's a challenge between the stability of the antimicrobials that are used the um, ch- the changing inputs, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about a fresh yeah. product. There's variation. So coming from the ground. Coming from the ground, yeah. it grows outside. Mm-hmm. So managing wash water, I think, is um, something that much of the industry struggles with. Mm-hmm. And and in leafy greens, that's obviously a recurring concern and some challenges there with with irrigation water. What are some things going on there in that space right now? Yeah, well, having two, you know, two sizable and very visible outbreaks, both in the spring associated with Yuma and then in the fall associated with California, and the actions FDA took, you know, banning 
all romaine. That really got people's attention. While there are gaps in science, I think we, as the industry, took the approach that um, we can't wait for the science. You know, we can't we can't just do nothing and use that as an excuse. So the industry is kind of the pendulum swung in the other direction of being very proactive and saying if uh, if water is going to be used for overhead irrigation for for leafy greens within 21 days of harvest it's got to be treated if it's surface water mm-hmm. um you know well water municipal water have different risks inherently but surface water has a higher inherent risk and it's just got to be treated mm-hmm. no ifs ands or buts that you can't test your way into safe surface water mm-hmm. and i think that that at this point in time that that's a defensible mm-hmm. position mm-hmm. and not that it may not have some unintended consequences when you're talking about treating water on a mass scale what are the environmental impacts um you know these are obvious considerations but to protect public health given the history of outbreaks given that in both thought the spring and in the fall outbreaks that the outbreak strains were found in water or in sediment. It was clear that we just needed to change how we were approaching water. Mm-hmm. Thank you for going into the specifics well on these issues. I think that's very informative and helpful for those who may be just consumers of produce, for instance, not only people that are in our field of food safety, but in general. What are some other potential hazards that you have to keep an eye on in pro- in the produce world besides these pathogens these microorganisms what else do you do you work on um well you know i, I love i love the pathogens mm-hmm. so that's my <laughs> that's my focus area i feel more comfortable on the bacterial side mm-hmm. whether it's the gram positives or the gram negatives and we've got the listeria workshops which you've been very involved in mm-hmm. Fortunately, we haven't had any major listeria outbreaks lately, but you never know. I mean, it just takes somebody messing up and there could be an outbreak. Um, So I have, really my time has really uh, been monopolized by pathogens, but Mm -hmm. there are still chemical issues. Mm -hmm. So pesticides, and to me, a a lot of the um, publicity around pesticides is not really based in science or even if there's some science there it's it's a cost benefit of risk benefit mm-hmm. kind of equation and the dose makes the poison right. and i don't think that consumers see it that way i don't know that the media necessarily portrays it that way it's right. like wow we could detect this chemical mm-hmm. just because you detect it it doesn't mean that it's going to do something bad to you what are the consequences of not using mm-hmm. some of these tools that we have available to us and then the other thing that comes up from time to time uh, for some fresh produce items is heavy metals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when they're grown outside and they're grown in the earth mm-hmm. and there are heavy metals in the soil, some, you know, some fresh produce items may have an affinity for them, but again, not at levels that are going to have mm-hmm. any measurable health consequence, but it still becomes kind of a PR kind of issue of trying to explain to people what's happening and why why it's really this is not a big deal and there are probably way more important things that they should be focusing in on um but it's just that it's that constant communication yes we do tend to as a society or maybe it's driven by media or whatever 
I don't know, but um, we do tend to focus on minutia and things that appear to be bad for us get more attention than the things that are truly bad for us and risky to us. And the thing for fresh produce, and one of the reasons that I love working in this industry is it's such a healthy product. Yes. It's one of the only foods that, that nobody tells you, oh, just eat it in moderation. It's like, <laughs> no, you should eat more, you should eat more. It's nutritious, yeah. it's healthy. Um, so we really want to make sure that we communicate that mm-hmm. and recognize that the health consequence of not eating fresh produce, that's going to be catastrophic. Right. So yes, there have been outbreaks. We can't deny that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should always look for ways to improve the safety of the, of the products, both from sure. the micro side and from the chemical side. But when you consider the number of servings of fresh fruits and vegetables that mm-hmm. people eat every single day and the amount of illness that we have, the industry is doing a remarkable job, I think. There's no room for error. What are some of the ways, so produce is being used and prepared in different ways, new and different ways. Juicing is popular and other, et cetera. Are you facing some new and different challenges because of the way people are eating the product? Well, there's, so there are new Products. I mean, compared to when I was little, there are just way more mm-hmm. choices. They're coming from all over the world, mm-hmm. available pretty much any time of year. So, so it's just a. There's a lot in terms of volume and variety, and it means that there are a lot of growers out there and shippers and mm-hmm. a lot of people who are handling these products. And that's a lot of people then that need to be educated mm-hmm. on the basics of food safety. So it's not a consolidated industry where you just have a couple key players. And as long as they know what they're doing, we're good. Like, no, it's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, of course, there's the desire, I think, in society that things be local, that 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 small is better that organic is better again these things are not based in science but we have to respond to what people want or what people think they want those do present challenges and then you've got the the juicing right and the smoothies and people taking products that traditionally were cooked and now consuming them in raw forms so kale i think is a great example brussels sprouts is a great example um so, you know, thinking, I think, within the industry, recognizing that these products are going to be eaten raw, that they are ready-to-eat products, has really changed how they need to be handled. Right. I think historically there was a sense that they were raw agricultural commodities and, you know, that th- that we didn't need to take as high of a level of care yeah. as we now recognize is necessary. Do you find that the membership of United Fresh has started to take on different types of produce companies like IE hydroponics or micro farms and other Oh yeah, yeah. So a uh, couple uh, about a month and a half ago I got to visit one of the indoor mm-hmm. facilities. It was super cool. Neat. I mean, it's just um I think that that's a it's a growing area of our membership. I think it's a growing area of the of the supermarket mm-hmm. you know some of these indoor grown products okay. and again it, it gets to some of it it's probably attractive to people who are looking for something that's local when you can have in an in a city you can have a, a farm kind mm-hmm. of an indoor farm so yeah there's some really neat 
stuff going on out there. Mm-hmm. And it's fa- it's really interesting to me to watch. I don't like seeing, though, when people make assertions or claims that that it's absolutely safe, that, you know, compared to conventional agriculture, that it's much safer. I think maybe the risks are different, but I I want to make sure that everybody is mindful that you still need to take care for food safety. It doesn't sure. it doesn't happen by accident. Sure. And so that's where you kind of stand in the gap, right? You've got to provide that knowledge and experience and information to people that are new to the industry or or to adapt to these new scenarios. Right. And it's it's a never it's just never ending. Hmm. Job security. <laughs> uh, you know, there are. I don't know what your opinion of this is, but I get asked often, you know, I need a. Do you know a quality person? Do you know a food mm-hmm. safety person? And there's just not a ton of people who do this sort of stuff. Hmm. And I love coming to meetings where I get to meet students and try mm-hmm. to encourage them to like come over to yeah. our part of the industry because mm-hmm. there's just such a there's just such a need. Mm-hmm. Someone told me about, and this is a random thought, but you, you mentioned something that triggered this. ASQ, Association for... Quality? Yes. Did I get the acronym right? It's American Society of Quality. Quality, yes. American Society of Quality. And I thought, you know what? I wonder if we are missing an opportunity to go and uh, alert these people that are involved in ASQ that there are plenty of opportunities in the food industry to be a quality professional who gets systems and programs in place and manages them well and executes a good food safety quality program. I think we're wherever we can find people, we need to pull them in. Mm-hmm. So whether it's, uh, and food is popular, like it's culturally, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's, it's considered pretty cool. Even though science isn't considered cool, I think mm-hmm. food is considered cool. So yeah, trying to bring people who have some sort of scientific leaning into the food space, bring people who like food, have them recognize the science behind it, um, that, because there are just so many opportunities. So Jennifer, we talked a lot about the state of things in food safety and in produce safety in particular. So where, are, where do you see things headed? What are some gaps that that you think need to be addressed, whether in research through CPS or other means? What what do you think about all that? Well, I'm I think we're right at the beginning of understanding more about the broader microbial environment. So we know that um, a lot of organisms are not culturable. That there's a whole microbiome out there that we know very very little about. And I think we now are just starting to have the tools to understand how the microbial community uh, it interacts with, with itself and the different populations. And I think that, that will be quite revealing. We do have whole genome sequencing, and I'm very interested in some research that's uh, just started looking at how these microorganisms are dispersed and how they evolve mm-hmm. and how they're genetically related. So we've got very few sequences now in the database, relatively speaking, and mm-hmm. you find a match on a food or you find a clinical match and you know your mind's like, oh, it must have been. Mm-hmm. But it, until we really populate the, those databases, right. we don't know how, how these organisms move throughout mm-hmm. a, a region or throughout the country. And 
what makes some one different from another, like how different is different. So I think there'll be a lot of work on that front. One of the other things that comes to mind is, as we look at the change in the environment, mm-hmm. the climate, weather, temperature, water, um, you know, there's in the news all the time, you're seeing these like weird weather events. And clearly that has to have an impact on microbial populations. And that's going to have a consequence when it comes to food and food safety, especially when you're talking about, you know, my interest is fresh produce and it is grown outside. And so even from the plant's perspective, if a plant is under different types of stresses, does it make the plant more susceptible to, to um, you know, certain types of, of pathogens, whether it's on the bacterial side or the, the parasites, protozoa? Um, I, I'm, I'm just concerned that things are going to change and that we're always going to be a little bit behind. Mm. That's fascinating. Um, there is a lot of interest in the microbiome and, and consumers, people that are looking to improve their health are probably looking to fresh produce as a means to seed their, their own gut microflora with, with the right mixture of microorganisms in addition to probiotics probably. So. Yeah, and I think even understanding um, like individualized nutrition, mm. you know, that mm. we're each of us were different people and how do what do our bodies need and we do have different gut microflora so how you know how does my the food that i eat impact me maybe differently than if you ate that same food because you've got a different a different system so i think that i think there's just so much that we have yet to learn and and put into practice mm-hmm that I'm excited to see what happens in the future. Mm, good. Yeah, that's great. I am too. I think that, as you said earlier, it's a great product to work in. It's not like, um, and it's healthy. <laughs> it's a healthy product. So. Yeah, it's something you can feel good about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you don't feel good when, when there are outbreaks and when people are getting sick. You right. really don't feel good. But um, knowing, especially working with some of the, mm-hmm. the growers and the shippers and processors to see the pride they take in their products and that they know that they're feeding people good, healthy, nutritious food and mm-hmm. that, that everybody wants to do the right thing, right. wants to feed people and nourish people. And it's, I don't know, kind of a noble, a mm-hmm. noble profession. Indeed, it is. And, and would you mind if I ask, because I don't think we covered this, a little bit about the regulatory aspects I feel like it'd be remiss if we didn't talk about that. Um, what are you facing? Are you facing obstacles with um, with with performing or helping industry members uh, demonstrate compliance? Um, are you getting an ear in regards to um, influencing policy development or final rules or what have you? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm one of the probably few people that really loves regulations. I know most people find it to be dry, but I find the regulations to have fascinating stories within them when you understand why the regulations are constructed the way they are and why FDA is asking for what they're asking for. And so I try to use some of that kind of background and insight to help people understand how they can comply and why it's important to comply. But the regulations, in my mind, should always be a minimum standard there 
you have to do them and you have to have some documentation. So that's what some people get hung up a little bit on the documentation piece of it. Um, there are parts of the regulations, especially in preventive controls when it comes to sanitation as a preventive control, something above and beyond a GMP. Mm-hmm. I know that's challenging for some people to wrap their heads around and then it gets into environmental monitoring and mm-hmm. and people then they start to get really scared about what they are going to find and mm-hmm. if they're going to get in trouble um, so trying to allay some of those concerns and walk them through mm-hmm. how to how to manage their operations in a way that's compliant and also just the just the right thing to do and then uh, similarly with the supply chain program So recognizing that you can't, in this day and age, you can't just say, well, hey, I just, I just bought it from that guy. And you know, it's, it's not my problem. Like, no, it is your problem because you chose to buy from that guy. You have some responsibility in making sure that that guy's providing you with good, safe product. So figuring out how to best assess that, Mm -hmm. how to best verify that someone else is doing the right thing, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's been a little bit of, mm. of a challenge. Sure. We continue to work with FDA on the things as simple as defining a farm. Mm-hmm. So who's under the produce safety rule versus preventive controls? And right. when you have like a packing house mm-hmm. or a cooling operation. Mm-hmm. So um, we get hung up in, in some of the terminology and some of the semantics and trying to draw those yeah. bright lines. But we'll work through it. Mm-hmm. I'm confident that we will. And I've always you know tried to convey to our members that you need to do the right thing excellent jennifer you've been in this career for what 20 years yeah almost or roughly how did you get into this how did you find food safety food microbiology food science and then so it was dumb luck I feel like I'm the luckiest person because I had no idea when I was in high school I just didn't really think about the science behind food or food safety because you kind of take for granted that the food you eat is safe like yeah you've heard of food poisoning but that's you know to think that there was a profession around that I had no idea so I liked science um, but I didn't want to be a doctor and I didn't really know what else you would do as a scientist other than like you wear a lab coat and you have test tubes, but like what do scientists actually do? Mm-hmm. And um, so when I was applying to colleges, I just filled out, I liked biology, I liked biochemistry, and University of Delaware sent me a packet of information that said, oh, if you like science, maybe you'll like food science. Mm-hmm. And they sent the example, uh, you know, what your four years would look like, some of the research that was going on in the department. And I just thought it sounded really cool. Like, I, I could understand it. Mm-hmm. I could see the application, that it was truly a science, you know, that hard, taking the hard science classes, but applied to food. And I thought, that's, people need to eat. I like, I like food, so all right, fine. So University of Delaware has a, or at least at the time, had a really small program, only a couple of professors. And my undergraduate advisor, he happened to be the food micro guy. I wanted to do research as an undergrad because I wanted to get my hands like I wanted to do stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was my opportunity was on the food micro side. I did mm-hmm. high pressure work uh, with uh, 0157H7 and that was what just kind of started me down this path. And I've always found tremendous support mm-hmm. from the industry 
through IFT in particular, um, as a younger student through the student association and you know all the professionals who liked students who would reach out to students who would explain their careers and what they were doing and I just felt like this is a nice this is a really nice home mm -hmm. for me and so now I'm in a position where yeah I've I've been doing this like I'm not the youngest person in the room anymore mm -hmm. so now it's time for me to try to give back a little bit and mentor and support younger food safety professionals is that Speaking of that, what kind of advice would you give a young professional or student in this field? I think it's to keep an open mind um, because, at least for me, I've probably taken a pretty non-traditional career path. Um, at least when I was a, an undergrad student, you have a feeling like I can work for a company or I can go all the way and, and get my PhD and be an academic, be a professor. But to understand all the types of jobs on the government side, um, focused on, you know, more on the public health side, on the association side, even within academia, an extension professor versus one that has a heavier teaching load or a heavier research load that, um, you know, keeping that sort of open, open mindedness about career options and just talking to people and asking them, how did you get into what you're doing? What's your career path look like? Mm -hmm. That would be my advice to students. That's great advice. Thank you so much. And I want to thank you for doing this podcast interview. How can people get in touch with you or learn more about you or United Fresh in general? Yeah, well, if you if you Google me, as long as you spell my last name properly, um, there I, I don't know. I, for some reason, I, I, I have a lot of stuff about me online. I feel like my whole life is uh, available <laughs> online. But if you go to unitedfresh.org, um, again, my contact information is all over our food safety tab. I'm on LinkedIn. And I, I guess another piece of advice for students is don't be afraid to reach out to people. Mm -hmm. So even people who you may think are kind of inaccessible to you, it's always worth just trying to reach out because I know when people reach out to me, I, I try to get back to them. I try to follow up with them and, and establish those relationships. Excellent. And it's McIntyre, Jennifer McIntyre, M-C-E-N-T-I-R-E, correct? Like, like Reba. <laughs> Great way to remember. Whom I've actually run into at uh, a Sky Club once, only like last year. Wow. I didn't approach her. So. <laughs> well, we're not related. Oh, okay. I was going to ask that next, so thanks for... <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate your time. It was great, and I look forward to interacting with you again in the future. Thanks. No, this has been awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks, right. Peter. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety share insights. You can find more information about Aetna Consulting Group at aetnaconsulting.com. Our handle on social media is at Aetna Food Safety. Please follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Anchor, or whatever your podcast platform. Also, if you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to leave us a review. Until next time, think safe food.